0: Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. In today's episode, we discuss the macroeconomic outlook and rising or settling interest rates with Amol from Chatham Financial. Amol is a seasoned professional with over two decades of expertise in derivatives capital markets. As the managing partner and chairman of Chatham's boards of directors, He spearheads the corporate sector, providing invaluable insights to some of the world's largest corporations. Chatham Financial is a pioneering firm specializing in the debt and derivative markets. Their unique approach combines expert advisory with cutting-edge technology to handle the highest volumes and broadest range of engagements in the field. In the episode of today, expect to learn how do rising interest rates affect treasurers and markets and how can risks be managed what challenges do companies face with changing interest rates and how do funding strategies differ how has debt structuring evolved with shifting rates and what new strategies are emerging and like always much much more amol was absolutely great in explaining us in a one-on-one manner what is going on in the world right now and what we should expect in the coming year. We truly hope you will enjoy the episode. And if that is the case, when you're thinking about how you found our podcast, chances are that it was through word of mouth, social media, or a recommendation from your favorite podcast platform. And this is our only request to you. The best way you can support the podcast is to head to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel Corporate Treasury 101. That will mean the world to us and help more people learn about Treasury. And with all that being said, please welcome Amol.
1: Amol, thank you so much for coming on to the Corporate Treasury One One podcast. And we'd love your insights on what's going on nowadays with the macroeconomy, interest rates, etc. I think all treasuries are quite interested. I think there might be a little bit fatigue around hearing it again and again, but I'm sure you have some very interesting insights. So start us from perhaps the people that aren't keeping so close to the news. Um, what is the current macroeconomic landscape, especially concerning the interest rates and how the interest rates are are going nowadays?
2: Uh well first thanks for having me on the the podcast so Sam and uh, Guillaume, uh, very excited to chat with you both and uh share some of these insights uh w- with the audience. I like to call us in the uh the uh, the economy certainly in the US uh but but uh, really overall uh, in a little bit of a goldilocks phase. Uh you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. Uh that, that's probably the the best way to to think about it. Whether That holds true a few weeks from now or a few months from now. That's a different topic of of conversation. But right now, it feels as though global central bankers have navigated this period of really high inflation, geopolitical uh, challenges, wars going on, and other obstacles uh, relatively well, uh, better than I think most would have predicted. Economies continue to grow. But not too fast, uh, you know, not too much, uh, not too much growth to lead to more inflation. Uh, we're not seeing that much of a slowdown. And while unemployment, certainly let me focus on the US for a minute is growing. It hasn't grown by so much that we have you know, big global challenges, like a global recession that that's uh, we're thinking about today as we record this again. Who knows uh, what, what could happen in, in the coming weeks and months.
1: So that's interesting perspective because. It- I think most treasurers would disagree with you there about this Goldilocks zone, because I think for the role of a corporate treasurer is interest rates are high. My debt's expensive. That's, that's, <laughs> that's really it. Perhaps the yield aspect of your savings have gone up and that's nice and everything like that, but that's not the priority of a treasurer, right? Your yield is not the priority. It's, it's uh, liquidity and then, and then being able to raise debt and be not too much of a cost burden in how you support the business. How do you see the current interest rates and the environment impacting corporate treasurers?
2: Oh, I mean, that, that's, uh, that's a different question. <laughs> I mean, how, uh, corporate treasurers feel is, is different. It's like, uh, you know, anyone who's, uh, you know, going to buy a house, uh, they're looking yeah. at mortgage rates and saying, Oh my goodness, this is so high. The flip side of that is, Hey, thank goodness we don't have unemployment and, and there you actually have income in order to be able to even potentially afford maybe a smaller house th- than you wanted. But for corporate treasurers, the, the big challenge is, uh, rates have, your cost of financing has gone up by two, three X, maybe four X, depending on you know, the type of company you are. High yield uh, is you know, a little bit of a different story than, than investment grade globally. And so this is not to make light of this, but, uh, but there's a little bit of a grieving cycle, uh, here for, for corporate treasurers and, and CFOs, now, uh, which is, I, we all, we all start with denial, uh, that's, oh, you know, uh, <laughs> Rates won't stay at 5% forever. Uh, and you can even see that in the forward curve. The market's expecting rates to come down precipitously. And, and that may happen, who knows. But there's this bit of denial until eventually we all get to acceptance. We get there at different speeds. Uh, different businesses have different abilities to withstand this rate shock. And I wouldn't even call it a shock. I mean, we have higher rates than, than what we've had uh, the last you know decade plus. And so when we look at that scenario, uh, you know, companies are just going to be in, in different places on, on being able to get to or accept. Some have gotten there dealing with refinancing, dealing with, you know, acquisition finance, growing through this. Others have not quite gotten there yet. And, and they're really asking them, themselves the question of, you know, will it get better in the future uh, or should I take what's available to me now? And very difficult, uh, very, very difficult to answer that question in, in a vacuum. But uh, But I think that's my answer too, to your question, Basam It's that uh, we're, we're, not everyone is at acceptance in the grieving cycle mm-hmm. yet.
1: So do, does everyone need to know? So how do you see that playing out? What's your general advice on the macroeconomic trend to corporate treasures? Is the best line of approach to stick like do what you can with the current environment, don't expect it to come back down? Is it here to last?
2: Yeah, are, are rates here forever and here to stay? The market definitely does not believe that right? Uh, when you look at the market, market is absolutely expecting recession in the future. To be clear, the market has been calling a recession for a very long time. Uh, that's not to belittle that call. It's just, uh, I think this is going to be the most widely called recession in the history of the world. I mean, everyone and their grandmother will be able to say that, uh, you know, I saw this coming. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, your question is, what can companies do and what can corporate treasures do today? I, I think, you know, Unfortunately, the best time to be prepared for higher rates was yesterday, um, but the next best time uh, is today. And you know, from a capital structure standpoint, uh, having a laddered capital structure is uh, ideal rather than having everything maturing once. Having a variety of funding sources is helpful, uh, so not just relying on one market. So if you're a bank or just relying on the bank market it might be challenging because banks can be interested or not in, in lending to uh to your business or to your industry diversifying funding sources diversifying your capital stack all of that is is really helpful and even in the current environment thinking deeply about you know what your future capital structure looks like uh, how you should be thinking about sources of debt fixed floating how you should be thinking about hedging now that's uh as a firm, Chatham spends an inordinate amount of time uh, working with our clients on financial risk management and interest rates is a big piece of that. Uh, so we have lots of depths that we can get into here. Uh, we don't want to take go down too many rabbit trails, but, uh, but, but I think those are some of the pieces of advice that I would have is, you know, yesterday was the best time, but the next best time is today. It shouldn't matter whether rates are higher or lower. Really developing a capital structure and a robust hedging program that withstands all of these different scenarios is The job of the corporate treasurer uh, to, to really take that to the CFO and the board and make sure everyone's on aligned to support that program.
0: I like that a lot. And it's funny to see that the circumstances change, the framework on how to handle risk management doesn't. Like diversification, making sure to mitigate the risk, having different sources of funding is evergreen concept that you should be applying anyways, whether it's high or low interest rate, because a, anything gets worse over time, so that's that's what happens, and B, when it changes, you want to be prepared, and that's what risk mitigation is all about here. To maybe make the parallel between, okay, people who want a mortgage and a further house, and maybe the interest rates uh, cannot allow such a big house nowadays, but maybe tomorrow it will, what's the recommendation for people who, or for companies who are sub-investment grade or on the contrary investment grade? Are there different considerations here? Given the macroeconomic outlook, should they be watching out for the same things or a bit different? Um, If the cost of debt is much higher, does it mean sub-investment grades are, uh, how to put that, incorporated in a bad position? (laughs) Or what should they do? What are the differences here? Uh, Yeah, Guillaume, I'd
2: I'd say there are different scenarios to, to consider for high yield versus investment grade. So starting with investment grade, Capital sources are plentiful uh, for them. Bond markets are open. And yes, the cost of financing is higher. But uh, we've seen it, you know, frankly, for the last three years that the ability to get financing for investment grade companies is not necessarily the, the challenge. The challenge is, you know, can you get to acceptance on the, on the higher rates? Um, and are there, you know, some different structures that you want to consider uh, even in the investment grade space? But investment grade, uh, I think, has a bit of an easier time to, to your point than the high yield issue. Uh, we've seen many times over the last several years where high yield market is closed, you know, hung term loan B's, uh, on bank balance sheets, uh, has closed things down a number of times. You know, banks have taken large losses on, on buyout loans and and other, you know, loans of of that type. Uh, They've marked down the value of those, which just makes it harder. The good news, though, uh, is that there's a whole new source of capital that's come in, that has been in the market for a long time, but but has really come in in force, uh, which is on the private capital and private debt side. Uh, you see some of the largest alternative asset managers in the world raising these private capital and private debt funds. Uh, so it's those um, sources of capital are really taking uh, what used to be, I would call it, traditional bank lending, and putting it more in... On the balance sheet of these funds so taking it off of the banks onto these funds there's a tremendous amount of capital that's been raised uh, for, for these vehicles uh, which means they're chasing deals which means they're looking for good companies to to lend to and so while rates are higher it's and there have been periods more often periods of you know challenging funding environments for high yield companies. Uh, the good news is more sources and a lot more capital going to those new sources of uh, of debt, uh, which means that uh, there is funding available for companies that want to. And if you're a high yield uh, borrower, that's you know one of the uh, conversations that that certainly you know we've had advising on capital structure. Uh, you know, do you want to take your term loan B and turn it into and replace it with uh, you know, private debt capital uh, instead? So go from bank borrowing to know, a different institution. So there, there are a lot of these types of um, opportunities that are available. Uh, the, again, the hard thing is you have to come to acceptance that the cost of financing is, is higher, not just our rates higher, but spreads are higher. And one strategy is, is hope. Uh, but uh, I think somebody, there's some famous line that says hope is not a strategy. Uh, but, uh, you know, that certainly is, is something to consider, just wait and see if things get a little bit better. But will things get back to where we were uh, immediately at the time that we were during COVID, where we saw zero percent interest rates or negative interest rates in Europe uh, and other places around the globe, phenomenally tight spreads, you know, tons of investor demand for uh, for all of these types of assets? It, it feels like a little bit of a different world today than what we were in just a few years ago.
0: And so, to take the other side of the of the spectrum. For the people who, for the company who look into investing in this high-lead environment, how does it work? What are the circumstances for them that needs to be taken into account when it comes to investing because they have an excess of cash?
2: Yeah, we're not uh, we're not cash experts, but I will say, isn't it nice to get a return on cash you know, for the first <laughs> time? Um, for you're, sure you're it just, is. Uh, you're, you're not just talking about earnings credits against, uh, you know, against um, big balances with zero percent or negative interest rates that, that you're earning on it, you're actually able to, to generate some return. Um, and so, you know, some of the conversations that uh, that we've heard from, from our clients, which tend to be large multinationals, corporate treasurers of, of those types of firms, has been a move away from some of the incremental search for yield that was happening in the low rate environments and back to basics is maybe the, the best way to put it on uh, on investment and cash management. Um, today where we say hey let's we don't have to get too creative about the incremental search for yield because there is yield and, uh, and return available uh, for our balances this is generally true for investment grade companies well sorry yields available for everybody but investment grade companies are the ones that have cash to invest um, as opposed to to, to high yield uh, borrowers but it's a little bit again like I said back to basics of you know let's just make sure that we're looking at uh, the right tenors, the right asset classes. We're not tying up our cash for too long. We have the right level of liquidity uh, that, that we want, and there is again capital that you can invest uh, with lots of places where you can generate a, a forget positive, but but a decent return. So th- this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know this uh, this idea that um, you know these strategies that companies come up with, whether on the financing side or the investing side, are. Uh, are essentially evergreen um, and and they should be somewhat agnostic to the market environment with of course, tweaks for the market. It's a little bit different being a, you know borrowing at eight, nine percent money versus borrowing at three, four percent money. Uh, but uh, but having a strategy that uh, that endures and survives through all of that uh, is what I would say the leading you know treasury professionals, capital markets uh, professionals are, are have put in place.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Amo, we would love to deep dive into debt structuring and funding and how all this macroeconomic landscape and change in interest rate and maybe whether it's here to stay or not, how does that impact treasury and how they should be thinking their debt structuring. So maybe can you walk us through that to begin with? Like, Can you dive into how the interest rate changes are affecting debt structuring for corporates and maybe at the same time and making the link with the banks, how does that impact corporates but also banks In debt structuring?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, so what's interesting is if you look at it from a macroeconomic standpoint, uh, most of the studies would say this global rise in interest rates has not actually hit corporate interest expense all that much. It hasn't been that dramatic of a move. And the reason for that is that most companies have moved towards, uh, certainly if you're investment grade, tend to be more, you know, heavily fixed rate borrowers with, uh, issuances that happened, you know, pre-pandemic or during the pandemic, really in a lower rate. And so, yes, rates are higher, but if, you, if your next bond doesn't mature for seven years, you're watching it and saying, well, nah, you know, let's see what happens. There's all, probably a whole nother cycle to go before, you know, we need to do something. For those that are more floating rate borrowers, again, very different. And, and they're impacted certainly on the cost of their term loans or any floating rate debts uh, that they have outstanding. That cost uh, has certainly grown significantly, particularly if the company has not hedged their interest expense. Now, most prudent floating rate borrowers uh, have hedged in, in some way or had hedged uh, in some way. Maybe they hadn't hedged 100% of their debt. Maybe they hadn't locked it up with interest rate swaps and maybe they'd purchased some interest rate caps for essentially uh, consider them a form of insurance. You have some risk that you're willing to take and then above that, the, the cap will protect you. Uh, so there's been some marginal increase. Uh, but again, at the at the macro level, uh, the studies would say really hasn't impacted corporates that much. At the micro level, if you're that company that has floating rate debt and didn't do much hedging, um, you're feeling this a, a lot uh, right now, which is why we say, you know, having that strategy before uh, you need it, you want to have that insurance in place before you get into an accident or before the fire starts. Because when... When the fire starts, it's already too late. You don't want to be calling around for insurance. So a big part of this is, you know, what kind of company are you? Are you one that can withstand this uh, uh, this scenario? And you might even have another cycle or two. We have a client that has you know, predominantly issues 30-year debt. Um, you know, they have long-lived assets, investment grade. Uh, they're fine is probably the, the, the best way to put it. Uh, next set of debt doesn't mature for like 15, 20 years. CFO probably, you know, is feeling really good about the, you know, pre-issuance edges, forward-starting swaps that, that he executed when he was treasurer three years ago, uh, dur- during COVID. Um, so he's already locked out, uh, you know, uh, debt that's coming due in, in several years at very low rates. How he feels is very different than the, you know, high-yield borrower that's having a tough time refinancing because the business is uh, a little bit challenged and interest rates are higher. Uh, and, and that's a really, uh, challenging, uh, situation to, to navigate uh, right now because some level you'll have to make a choice at some point you have to make a choice of saying do i go back to my existing lenders and you know try to get an extension do i do something more significant you know, how much am i really impacted from an interest coverage standpoint uh, when rates are two three x higher than, than what they were when i financed this back in you know 2019
0: 2020 yeah 15 to 20 years indeed sounds like a pretty safe horizon. You're pretty well (laughs) off uh, for the coming years. But so what about the investment grade companies that have debt maturing right now or one year ago or in one year, which have this safety and comfort of being investment grade, maybe even with a bit of excess cash, but needs to walk through debt because that's how a lot of companies work. They're like, their debt is maturing now in a period of high yield interest rate, and they already extended their RCF. To take an example, what's the impact on them, and how should they approach it as a treasurer?
2: So, an interesting thing: they tend investment grade companies tend not to worry about capital availability, um, so that's good news. They get to optimize for cost of capital even more, and they're really fine tuning on, on cost of capital. So, one trend that we've really seen that's been interesting, and you know, is as as volatility in uh, in rates has has increased, uh, and that doesn't just mean rates going up. Uh, you know, we've seen the ten year treasury in the U.S., for example, crest over five percent, and then go back down to four fifty, and then back up to four seventy five. And this is literally, you know, while people were probably having the discussions internally on whether we finance now or later and you know, what have you, it's literally in the span of days uh, that we've seen these types. Investment grade companies are actually paying more attention to um, tools that are available to them, like pre-issuance hedging, uh, which is essentially allowing you to decouple pricing of your bond from, uh, you know, and and the spread on your bond from the underlying interest rate at which you might issue. Uh, And so typical for an investment grade company, if you're going to do a billion dollar issuance is you do the issuance all in one day. You, you know, you have the go, no go call in in the morning. You decide, uh, you know, to, to issue or not. And, and you price a billion right, right then and there, which means you're at the whim of a few different things. Uh, one, you have specific windows on which you can issue given earnings period, blackout period. Two, you, within those windows, you can delay by a day or two. Um, of course, but you're a little bit at the whim of whatever rates are on those dates. Uh, right. So if the tenure, if it happened to be a day when the tenure of treasury crested 5%, and the next day it went back down to 485. Um, that's 15 basis points that you uh, may have left on on the table. And the hard thing is it's not about trying to get the best rates in the market, it's about creating some level of predictability so that you can plan on a longer term basis for the business uh, and for the capital Uh So the tool that we've seen a lot of investment grade companies leveraging, uh, no pun intended, uh, is uh, these pre-issuance hedges where uh, they might dollar cost average uh, into into hedging what that 10-year rate might be. And rather than waiting for what it is on one day, and personal finance example, for any investments we do, generally, dollar cost averaging leads to less volatility than picking one day. Uh, now, maybe you pick that day and it was the best day in the market. Maybe you pick it, it's the worst day in the market. But that's not what corporate treasurers are paid for. As is, is you both highlighted at the start of this conversation, uh, they're focused on... Uh, reducing volatility for their companies and ensuring liquidity uh, and that reduction in volatility comes from leveraging some of these tools that you know when rates were 0% wasn't something that uh, that people were paying as much attention to as now we're seeing these big swings due to you know changes that can happen geopolitical events or Powell speaking at a conference or you know a presidential election there are these big macroeconomic uh, events that are happening that are driving it You don't want to be the the treasurer that's issuing uh, the day that, uh, the day that one of those events occurs and you have no choice but to issue.
0: Indeed. And so what about the banks, Amol? Like that's the corporate treasurer's perspective, the company's perspective. What about the banks? How do they, how should they approach this whole macroeconomic environment? And what have you seen happening in the consequences that they have to face and how they actually walk around those?
2: Yeah, so so super interesting. I mean, as of now, you know, banks are—they're not having great earnings years. Um, and usually, what that means is that they have to relook at their portfolio and figure out where they're investing and, and where they aren't investing. Uh, uh, but you know, banks are impacted by this higher cost of capital just as much as everyone else, right? That they, they—they now back to what we were talking about on the investment side. Now banks are paying interest on deposits. That that wasn't a thing as recently as just a few years ago. Uh, there was no interest really to, to pay, um, and so you know banks are finding themselves uh, still. You know they have these uh, they have these deposits. They're not paying you know, full uh, full freight uh, rates are on, but uh, but they're higher than it was before. Their cost of capital has increased. They've had a hard time, depending on the bank and the, the markets in, in which they operate. And so for banks, actually, I would say what's interesting for them is that they have some competition, these alternative sources of capital uh, that, that we've uh, discussed. And so on one hand, they'd love to you know, lend out capital at, at higher and higher rates. Uh, but there are these, uh, these competitors, for, for lack of a better term, that, that are out there. And an interesting trend we're seeing now is banks starting to actually partner with, with some of these shops and saying, you know what, we'll, we'll do some private lending either from our balance sheet or we'll introduce others. Uh, into this capital structure so that we as a bank are not taking on all the risk ourselves. There's some very significant innovation happening, I would say. And, and even in the next few months, we're going to see, in the next few quarters, we're going to see meaningful changes to financing markets, even for investment-grade companies. Uh, we're already starting to see that. So, uh, investment-grade companies starting to partner with banks, uh, alternative capital sources in different ways for Project finance, infrastructure finance, or c- specific investments uh, that, that they might be uh, making. Looking at capital structures, differently. and again, this is you ask, well, you know, what are the banks doing? The banks are figuring out how to make money. That that's their job. <laughs> um, they, they're they're figuring out how to do it while reducing their capital costs. Uh, and you know, part of that is working with uh, with companies for creative solutions, uh, whether you're investment grade or or sub investment. Uh, that, that's been the case.
1: Very interesting. Amal, um, give us a Treasury 101 uh, take on how the current interest rates are linked to the derivatives market. Uh, and then also how do interest rates impact the derivative market and what's the derivative market doing right now?
2: Yeah, so I'd say we've seen, uh, so the derivatives market has been really interesting for the past few years, especially on the rate side. Uh, one uh, rates have gone up uh, a lot uh, as we've talked about um two we've actually seen one of the biggest changes uh, that's ever happened in our lifetime uh, occur uh, with relatively little impact on both derivatives and and financing markets which is the move away from ibors um global, uh, you know libor being the, the poster child in the US but uh but you know, really all the iBORs going away uh, has been a really significant uh, change. And so derivative markets have had to withstand uh, one, I'd say, increased scrutiny and volume as more companies, more users are used leveraging derivatives in order to ma- mitigate their, their interest rate risk, while changing the underlying index off of which everything is is done uh, in the world. It's the old, uh, you know, changing the tire while you're driving the car uh, d- down the road. That That is uh, physically impossible, but, but that is exactly what's been asked of uh, of derivatives markets in the last several years. And so we we weathered the eyeboard transition. Higher rates has led to meaningful increase in usage of derivatives by end users, by corporates, uh, by corporate treasury teams, and it's unfortunately a little bit reactionary. It would have been good to have done some of that hedging before rates went up by four hundred basis points. Uh, but uh, but but I think there's a lesson there. For so we've seen a, a big increase uh, there in terms of derivatives themselves. I'd say the most commonly used uh, derivatives we've seen by corporate treasury are uh, we've seen a lot more usage of interest rate swaps. Interest rate caps are still popular, but but generally, uh, you know, depending on what you're trying to do, may have gotten materially more expensive. Uh, whereas swaps in an inverted yield curve. Uh, are allowing companies to actually lock in lower rates for longer periods of time. That's a very unusual situation. Most of the time, uh, we have an upward sloping year curve. So that means rates are higher in the future than they are for, for, rates are higher for longer term debt than they are for shorter term debt. Where we are today is rates are lower for shorter or for longer term, which is very different. And the other uh, trend that we've seen, particularly for multinationals, uh, is cross-currency swaps. So going from borrowing in one currency to another um, and finding some type of funding arbitrage uh, that may not be readily available, as easily available in different funding markets. And so those those tools have become increasingly popular for a variety of reasons. Namely, there are ways to reduce interest expense. Uh, that's been the big headline, uh, You know, swap longer, we can actually go lower than what uh, so far is. Today. Do a cross currency swap. We can change our effective interest rate from you know, if you're borrowing in the US at you know five six percent something to Japan borrowing essentially two percent. Uh, so so those have been some of the trends that we've seen in the last few months, uh, sort of the last few quarters. I'd say in the derivative.
0: Could you explain us a bit, abel uh, just to go back to Treasury one hundred and one a bit. What's the cross currency swap and why it is particularly relevant in that scenario? Like, why would companies tend to use that more in a high interest period?
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, they can use it in any interest period. Um, but uh, cross currency swap is taking a, a, a step back. Uh, this is it's an interest rate swap where a company is exchanging payments in one currency for payments in another. So. Let's take a simple example. Let's say you're a U.S.-based uh, multinational. You're borrowing in U.S. dollars, and I'm going to make up these numbers. Please don't, uh, you know, if anyone's listening, don't, <laughs> don't, uh, don't go off and try to trade off of this. Uh, this is not uh, live or real time. But uh, conceptually, you're let's say you're borrowing in the U.S. at seven percent, um, uh, and you say, "Well, you know, we set, happen to have a lot of positive earnings uh, in in Japan." Uh, What can we do uh, with that? Well, one tool that uh, they could do is say, "Hey, well, why don't we just go and borrow in Japan Uh, instead of borrowing in the U.S.? Why don't we repay our U.S. borrowings and go borrow in Japan?" That could be great, uh, but maybe uh, they've never done a a deal in Japan before. Maybe the quantum that the company wants to actually issue in Japan, given their earnings in Japan, is not large enough to warrant an, an issuance. You know, maybe you have to do a much larger issuance than than the amount that you can really withstand. And so one tool that this company can use is a cross currency swap. And in the cross currency swap, essentially the company would go out and pay a Japanese yen interest rate, and I'm gonna make up the number, let's say it's two percent, uh, and receive six percent from their cross currency swap counterpart. Um, so now the company has a six percent bond in the US. Uh hopefully that was the number I used earlier. Uh <laughs> I think a, it was or
0: seven something. Or like, seven. Six or seven okay. percent.
2: In this right, well, waters. Let's, let's go with six because I haven't <laughs> well, accepted yet either. Let's, let's go with the old rates. So you're borrowing at 6% um, in the U.S. Um, you enter into this cross-currency swap. You're receiving payments of 6% um, USD from your cross-currency swap counterparty. That cancels with your bond that you just issued or, or that you have outstanding. And now you're left with these 2% Japanese yen payments to your cross-currency swap. So essentially it allows you to synthetically convert that US dollar offering into a yen offer. Now, again, that only makes sense if you already have Japanese yen exposure, i.e. Uh, you already have earnings that you can use uh, or free cash flow that you can use to service that yen debt. If you create this yen exposure, but you don't have any yen um, currency, now you've actually traded interest rate risk for currency risk. And that's a whole different problem, which we're happy, which I'm happy to talk about too, because we spent a lot of time. Uh, but again, in this situation, you know, the, the company has used, um, a derivative rather than a financing vehicle to achieve its desired objective. And in this, again, in this scenario, they've gone from 6% expense, interest expense to 2%. It's a huge savings. Uh, now, again, it's, uh, it's not a free lunch. You don't get to just do this. Like I said, you have to have that exposure, um, to, to begin with. Um, it's one way of essentially creating a natural hedge on that exposure that uh, you uh, have, it may be better, it may be worse than doing a natural yen issuance. So companies really have to evaluate uh, all these different tools, but it's much faster to execute than, uh, than doing a yen issuance. So much, much faster uh, than doing yen issuance. Even for uh, a high yield or investment grade company, cross-currency swaps tend to be a, a quicker path that can be executed within days rather than within weeks or
0: that is super interesting. And so they're able to do that because A, they have a strong activity in the U S for instance, but also some free cash flows in Japan. In Japan, just to so stick to the example, right? No, this is not financial advice. Uh, they have revenues in Japan that they're able to leverage into executing a cross currency swap from their debt in USD to an interest rates repayment in JPI. That's, that's exactly where the magic happens.
2: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's essentially as if it's. you had borrowed yen. It's essentially as if you just borrowed yen. And, and had you borrowed uh, in the yen markets, mm-hmm. your interest rate would be lower because Japanese interest rates are lower. Yeah. And so, um, so uh, again, it's a synthetic way of, of achieving the desired outcome. And that's really all derivatives are. Um, for any of your listeners that aren't as familiar with them, it's, uh, it's an overlay uh, on, on top of what you have. Uh, and you can create these synthetic exposures. To whatever you do. synthetic That again exposure, synthetic fixed rate exposure, turn a term loan B from a, you know, SOFR plus uh, into a fixed rate, uh, essentially, uh, turning fixed rate debt into floating rate debts. Uh, it's, it's an overlay on top of uh, your existing capital structure.
0: Absolutely awesome. And so, are there any other innovative approaches or strategies that companies can take or should consider uh, in light of these shifts and when? In a period of high interest rates, this cross currency swap is an excellent one. What else do you recommend the people you talk to and your clients have? Or what what else is out there that corporate tutors can leverage to navigate those choppy waters? Let's say.
2: Yeah, I I think um, I'm going to give uh, I'm going to share a counterintuitive idea um, with with folks, and that's actually to borrow floating rate. That is, see, I, I see your head shaking. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so, but let me tell you why. If you're, this actually goes back to your investment, uh, the investments conversation we were having earlier. You're an investment grade company. You have cash on hand. You have uh, short term securities. You're earning interest uh, on those. Most investment grade companies have a very heavily fixed rate debt cap. And when rates were really low, uh, to the extent that they had policies, which most of them do, uh, around their fixed floating mix, um, they skewed very heavily towards the the fixed rate side. What's interesting is that, you know, think about the rate environment we're in now. And if rates go higher, uh, from an asset liability standpoint, your assets, you'll earn more on your assets. Um, this is overly simplified, but you'll earn more on your assets uh, in that world. And you might, uh, your your cost of debt will still be fixed. Uh, but if rates go lower, you're going to earn less on your assets and your cost of debt is still fixed. So now you've actually introduced interest rate risk to to the company that you may have thought was not initially there. So one argument is to actually go floating uh, when uh, particularly for investment grade companies to have more floating rate exposure because it will offset some of the assets. To take it one step further, though, uh, it's not enough just to think about assets. It's important to think about your business volatility as well. Uh, and so if you have a business that will do exceptionally well or exceptionally poorly in different call it macroeconomic cycles, uh, it's worth thinking through the impact that that has. And that might indicate that you actually want more floating rate debt or less floating rate debt. If you have a cyclical business that will actually have less revenue in times of uh, economically challenged uh, times or or fewer earnings uh, in economically challenged times, you might actually want to have some debt that allows you to take advantage of, i.e. floating rate debts, um, assuming that economically challenged times are equivalent to, you know, central banks reducing interest rates so I recognize it's very counterintuitive uh, advice given the era of high rates but uh, but it's actually a it's a more complicated concept than just saying oh let me pick high rates or, or low rates because if you have the ability to uh, to mitigate that risk um, through your business or that bis- that risk can be accentuated um, through your your capital structure and through your assets and how you generate cash as a business it's all worth uh, taking into consideration before making some blanket statement on be all fixed or be all floating.
1: Well, do you see any impact of this on the way treasury departments are also managing their FX? I mean, you can't really talk uh, interest rates without talking interest rates differentials, especially nowadays we see across lots of different countries, different uh, central bank policies really affecting the differences in these bond markets and interest rates in different countries that tends to drive FX up and down one way or the other as well. And are those two conversations intrinsically linked? And if so, how is that affected nowadays?
2: Yeah, some, they, they definitely are linked. Uh, I think they, they sometimes tend to get uh, separated from, from one another, but but it's hard to really totally separate them. One, uh, maybe a few things we've seen, um, and then let's take a step back the last few years. Uh, we've seen historical dollar strike. Um, that's good or bad for companies, depending on, You know your perspective and currency uh, footprint. We saw that historic strength followed by a rapid weakening of the dollar. Uh, And everyone thought, oh, that was just a little short-term blip. We don't need to think about that anymore. And of course, that was followed by a return to strength of uh, of the dollar. I think more than even interest rates, what we're living through is a time period where many uh, corporate treasury professionals and corporate finance professionals just haven't seen. We haven't seen... A uh, scenario where we have, you know, globally high interest rates, while arguably the largest or second-largest economy in the world is uh, is actually slowing down. That is not a scenario that we have seen quite a long time, and we don't know exactly what that will mean uh, for for everybody. So, the consequence of this on FX is, and I hate to be a little bit of a broken record, it's have have a game plan, have a policy that survives. Any market environment is what we've seen. A lot of companies are looking back at the policies uh, and their programs and saying, "Hey, no, this isn't quite doing what I thought it was going to be doing." Or we had a company come to us not that long ago and say, "You know, we're hedging everything, literally hedging everything. We're spending tens of millions of dollars on forward points um, on our balance sheet program, and I'm not actually reducing that much risk. Like, if if only I could just stop hedging these three currencies." You know, we told them is that, well, you could save half your expenses and you'd still be reducing something like 85% of the risk. Is that trade-off worth it or not? Some CFOs uh, will say, absolutely not. I never want to answer an FX call on an earnings call or FX question on an earnings call. So hedge everything. I don't care what it costs. Most CFOs don't say that. Most CFOs say, if you can get 80, 85% of the benefit for only 50% of the cost, that's a good trade. Let's do that. And so. So really, you know, forward points are changing it, to your point, but more broadly, the there's more volatility, uh, and it's a very different macro environment than what we've seen, uh, which means taking another look at the program. For, and, and the interesting reality is only about half of companies, only about half of multinationals hedge their FX. That's surprisingly low, uh, if you uh, ask me. And that doesn't mean you need this big, robust program that a Fortune 100 would do, Um you know, uh, Fortune 50 would, would do. But there are tools and c- capabilities that are out there that can allow even, you know, I- I'd call it billion-dollar turnover uh, companies to be able to run programs effectively and efficiently like companies that are 100 size.
1: And do you see that, like, also split, uh, seep into these... Cause I think one of the interesting things that's come out of this conversation more is, like, the insight into these innovative... Uh, Products that are coming out that are helping us navigate these kind of environments. So, do you see the same thing in FX? I mean, you talked about the currency swaps earlier. Anything else that you saw that like really impacts this FX hedging space?
2: So, uh, I'm going to say something that's going to probably be unpopular with the, uh, with some of the audience. <laughs> but uh, are you are you okay if I can get a little controversial of here? We're we uh,
0: proud. We prepared.
2: Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, I think there's a lot of innovative products being pitched in FX um, today, most of which are not at all fit for purpose. Um, yeah. And so um, I tried to uh, tone it down to a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and probably most companies should be using forwards, not options. This is not a blanket statement, but if if you're being sold double knock-in, knock-out products or any type of exotic FX um, trade, which is allowing you to maybe get a better rate or get something get more flexibility, my suspicion is that that it's not fit for purpose uh, and it will go away when you need it the most. And so, again, it's a bit of a blanket statement, but it's uh, it's important to note that I think financing markets, like all markets, when you hit a challenge or stumble, derivatives markets, financing markets, uh, there are creative solutions uh, around all of the the problems that exist. Some of those are good creative solutions, and some of them are bad creative solutions. Knowing the difference is what separates, you know, the, the companies that are going to, you know, be able to withstand these types of uh, challenges, and the uh, treasury professionals that are going to be able to make it through multiple cycles, uh, versus those that are going to be short-term focused and just make it through, you know, the next month or quarter. Uh, and you know, as unpopular as it is to go to the board or the CFO, uh, I think one of the most important conversations that treasurers can have today is saying I know this feels hard yes the cost is higher here is why this makes sense on a long-term basis because it's the treasurer's job to think liquidity and long-term for the company Uh, and if he or she is overridden by the board or the CFO or the CEO that's a different story but um, it takes courage to have the difficult conversations
1: super interesting so keep it simple is the large message, especially when it comes to FX, don't don't get drawn into the fairy tales that some of these products are bringing. That, yeah,
2: yeah, so that that that's exactly right. It's um, th- there is no such thing as a free lunch, um, as uh, you know the, the old phrase that you know, um, or uh, what do they say? If you've ever played poker and you don't know who you don't know who the, the sucker, sucker is, you. <laughs> um, then yes, yeah. exactly. So, um, so again, I, I think. It's not to denigrate all products and, and all situations and uh, uh, and those who are pitching these. There's absolutely value in them. There are absolutely scenarios. And we've seen it where companies have very complex contracts with their customers. They might actually have embedded options with their customers. That would be best by offsetting them, but with you know uh, different s- structures of options with counterparties on, on the FX side. Generally, uh, I, I would say stick to the simple uh, on... Uh, on fx and and we're seeing that uh, today that companies are the biggest questions that cfos are asking treasurers and boards are asking treasurers are am i protected what happens if you know xyz occurs uh and before it was what happens if the euro breaks up now it's what happens if the dollar goes back and we break parity on the euro again you know are we okay and what does this mean for us and uh you know that you know the the Most sophisticated um, treasures actually tend to keep it the most simple. It's been my experience.
0: And if you'd allow me, I will play a bit with the the topic. What do you think about the AI advancements and innovations when it comes to FX and interest rate risk management? Are they to be put in the same bucket for now? Because maybe they're not advanced enough. Have you seen some solutions that actually bring um, huge or at least substantial benefits? What's your overall opinion about? artificial intelligence, especially in those tools that help corporates navigate foreign currency management?
2: Well, given how fast uh, AI is uh, improving and and changing, I think I'd probably be a little bit of a fool to say that, uh, you know, that ah, it's not going to impact anything. Uh, We have seen some, and and we have some tools uh, that are, you know, leveraging uh, these different uh, capabilities. And, You know, one question that that companies often spend a lot of time on is, where is all of my noise coming from in my FX? I have FX FX exposures, I have FX uh, hedges. Why aren't they perfectly matching uh, one another? The way to answer that is analyzing lots and lots and lots of data. Um, It's not just how much euro exposure do I have and how much euro hedges do I have. It's when did that euro exposure come on? At what rate did it come on? Was the euro exposure actually euro exposure or was it dollar exposure that somebody in Belgium booked as euro exposure, even though it was really dollar exposure? It's getting into all these these types of weeds, which requires lots of, um, it requires uh, analysis of the data as well as insight into an, an organization. And my suspicion is that there are tools that will be developed over time that will take at least one piece of that equation and make it a button click as opposed to uh you know diving into an excel spreadsheet thousands of rows lots of different lines understanding what what each of them uh, means. whether ai will be able to understand whether the you know the person who inputs invoices in belgium actually meant to put it in euros or dollars i don't know i don't want to um guess on that but uh but it's been surprisingly helpful and helped my parents plan a trip to Scotland uh, a year or so ago. So, you know, you can probably get a lot, uh, you can probably get a lot more out of AI than we think. But I think in the FX and I'd say corporate finance world, there, there's some room to go before we get to that realized state. Uh, I wouldn't ignore it, uh, but but I wouldn't say we're we're there
0: yet. Amazing. Amal, thank you so much for that. We'd like to talk a bit about Chatham Financials. Could you walk us through what the mission statement of Chatham Financial is, please?
2: Yeah, so, so Chatham, uh, Guillaume, exists to partner with our clients to enable them to have uh, the best possible capital markets plans, whether that comes a debt capital markets um, strategy to derivatives and financial risk management. Uh, we aim to be the first call for our clients uh, when they're thinking about anything related to, uh, to capital markets uh, activity. We have been in business for over 30 years. We work with uh over 3000 companies globally we have offices headquartered in the US but uh offices and uh, multiple offices in in Europe uh multiple offices in the Asia Pacific uh, and Australia region multiple offices here in the US as well and working across all industries so uh whether it is uh whether you're a, a tech company a commercial real estate firm private equity sponsor uh, financial institution, insurance company. We have insight across all of those uh, different industries and provide uh, capital market solutions, Again, whether they're advisory uh, in nature or technology based, um, that are focused ultimately on that goal that I mentioned, which is enabling our clients to have the best possible capital market.
0: And so, where do you where do you operate? Is it mostly the U.S. or are you are you elsewhere as well?
2: Uh, we're a global uh, company, so we are. Uh, we have uh, clients. Uh, while well, we were started in the U.S. We have a large footprint uh, in uh, in Europe. Uh, our headquarters is in London, and we you know, work with uh, you know hundreds of, of companies in, in the U.K. and uh, and on the continent. Uh, operate in, uh, in the Australia, Asia Pacific uh, region as well, uh, because our clients tend to be global. Uh, we we tend to work with large institutions. Uh, whether they're large alternative asset managers that are investing in commercial real estate and uh, and private equity and corporate private equity or infrastructure, or they are insurance companies that are operating one part of the world or another, or multinational corporates that have operations all over the place, uh, we found that over the years, you know, having that ability to serve our clients in their local geographies as well as uh, having the uh, the scale that comes with a global uh, footprint are really ultimately beneficial to our clients because we can give some insights that uh, you can't get if you're just you know in the u.s or or in london or or in singapore the ability to combine all of that knowledge together allows us to give even better insight to our clients
1: super clear and so i actually heard um amal while we were researching for this you guys recently made quite a big acquisition can you tell us about it
2: uh yes, we acquired a company called uh, EA Markets. Uh, we're very excited to bring them uh, and their team and then their founder Ruben Daniels to Chatham. EA Markets is an investment bank, really uh, agnostic to industry but focused on enabling uh, their uh, their clients to have the best overall uh, debt and structured equity capital markets uh, plans. So working with uh, large companies all the way down to smaller companies, very focused on being on the side of the table as, uh, as their clients. And so, uh, they have the same ethos as, as we do at, at Chatham. And, and we're excited to be able to bring this type of, uh, debt capital markets, structured equity capital markets capability into our clients on a broader basis. We've worked with our clients on derivative transactions for years. But as we talked about earlier, a derivative is just an overlay. You, you, you don't do a, der- a derivative without having, for example, some type of debts uh, that you're trying to, uh, to manage, and very often our clients would come to us and say, "Hey, what you do for us on the derivative side? Helping us structure them, get the best price for them, you know, think through all the conflicts, provide all the support related to it. Can you do that on the debt side?" And and our answer was, "We have some expertise there, but uh, but not all the expertise." And now we're really excited to be able to have have this broader offering uh, to to our clients.
1: Super interesting. And how does that so? How does the acquisition, Amal, fit with your broader landscape that we just talked about, about the interest rates going up, BFX and whatnot, and the evolving needs of corporate treasurers?
2: Yeah, the the acquisition really allows us to offer a broader set of creative solutions to our clients when they're facing these exact um, challenges and problems of, I have higher interest rates, I don't have as much capital available, what can I do? Um, What's the best way to, to fill this gap? Uh, between, you know, what I want to do and, and what's available uh, to me. Uh, bringing in a team like the EA team and a professional like Ruben uh, allows us to really be able to better answer those questions. to our clients. We only exist uh, because our clients are asking these types of questions and trying to solve these types of problems. And we've always felt that it's important to be true experts and not just walk into a room and say, oh, you could do X, Y, and Z without knowing how to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and so... Uh, it's perfectly aligned with our vision of being that capital markets partner uh, and now just bringing in more expertise uh, to be able to support our clients as they're going through these types of decisions.
1: Well, thank you so much for that masterclass. I think it was, um, I think it's a topic that everyone has heard enough times that, okay, interest rates are high, interest rates are high. Um, I liked your more holistic perspective that, look, yeah, interest rate are high. That affects some companies that um, maybe did have, uh, their debt restructuring coming now if you're unlucky to do so or they're on the floating side of things uh, with their debt and um, the ones a lot of clients. It's interesting also, yeah, you never really think about the ones that aren't affected by the high interest rates, right? Which is the ones that had their debt, they're laughing now and uh, they're like, thank God have we just restructured well, two years ago, three years ago, five years ago for 30 years, for example. So that, that definitely puts them in a much better position or if indeed you are cash rich. Um, and then the interesting thing on these new products that seem to be helping out with a lot of these things. And then, of course, that fact that perhaps you should have a floating floating interest rate on a lot of the debt that you're covering right now, which tells me that you do believe it's going to come down again, the interest rates, uh, or there's a good chance of it. And you, you're with the market on that. Is that the right way to put it?
2: I think it's hard, it's hard to fight the market, but over a long enough time period, I find it highly unlikely that we're going to stay at 5% uh, forever for the next 50 years. I mean, there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. And it's back to what we talked about earlier, Sam, it's, uh, you know, what kind of plan do you have uh, as, as an organization that will survive, you know, any of these types of challenges that that might come up against it? It might not be the perfect plan in all situations and in all environments, um, but, but what's available that you can then fine tune uh, as you have more insight into What's happening on the business what's happening on and i think that's really um even those companies that you, you mentioned that that are not impacted and what they're spending their time on is thinking about what's next or what's next uh they're, they're not just you know i don't think anyone in corporate treasury just gets to sit there and twiddle their thumbs mm-hmm. and say look you know everything's great and so i think that's uh that's an important uh it's an important insight for for everyone to have that even if you're not impacted i mean, you still are impacted. For those that are really dealing with these decisions right now, it's as good a time as any to think deeply about what the future is going to look like for your organization as well as for
1: the markets. Yeah. I like that perspective as well. Don't have this like fear of what. Well, it's terrible right now. Make the best plan that you can with the current situation. And I think that's spoken like a good corporate treasure. I think is uh, is indeed to, to have that strategy. Amal, thank you so much. And is there anything about any of the topics that we didn't cover that you want to you want to add on?
2: No, I don't think so. I think uh, I think we covered a lot of different topics. Um, um, and uh, I'm not even sure if the what time it is, but uh, oh okay. Time has flown by. <laughs> up,
1: yeah, indeed. We took up we filled up a whole hour, don't worry. We've got a good episode out of it as well. And, and if people want to find out more about you or Chatham Financial, where can they go to to do that?
2: Yeah, please uh, feel free to come to our website, www.chathamfinancial.com. We have a lot of great insights on there around markets, uh, around what's happening with uh, clients. And and you can reach out to me or any one of uh, my fellow uh, team members uh, to to talk about different ways that Chatham can help you and support your organization.
1: And all those links will be in the show notes below. Amal, thank you so much.
2: Thank you.